good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's episode is the second part, telling the remarkable story of an extraordinary man. We are speaking to Murray County's highest-ranking military officer. Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong descends from one of the county's oldest families. Born and raised in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, he went on to a stellar military career, which began at the United States Naval Academy before he transferred to the Air Force to become a pilot. While serving, he became an aerospace engineer and test pilot, flying many different aircraft. By the time the Vietnam War started, Mr. Armstrong was a veteran pilot with 11 years flight experience. As a major during the conflict, he flew over 100 combat missions in F-105 Thunder Chiefs in in Southeast Asia between 1967 and 1968. Moving up the ranks, his commands took him around the world and across the United States and even to the stars. Having served as Deputy Director of Space Systems and Command Control and Communications, He retired from the Air Force as a lieutenant general in 1990. General Armstrong spent the next 11 years as a senior executive at NASA, leading the agency's human resources efforts and programs with academia. Joining me via telephone this afternoon, once again, is retired Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong. General Armstrong, welcome back to History's Hook. I'm glad to be here, Tom. We'll pick up where you were. Yeah, so let, let's let's recap briefly uh, before we pick up uh, where we left off. Uh, uh, you're born in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, in, in 1934. Your your dad had been a, a Navy veteran, I think, in World War One. Uh, so you Correct. sort of grew up in in rural rural Tennessee. Uh, upon graduating from Haylong High School, you decided Vanderbilt was your next step, but only spent a year there, uh, and then went on to the United States Naval Academy. Uh, and feel free to jump in if I if I get any of this wrong. A- after you graduated from there, uh, you uh, took care of your primary flight training out in Arizona uh, before doing more training in uh, Mississippi and back to Arizona again in, in F-86s uh, and F-100s. Then uh, deployed to Myrtle Beach in 1958, assigned to the 356 Fighter Day Squadron, uh, which took you not only to Myrtle Beach, but... Uh, Posts, postings in Europe uh, as well. Uh, after three years with that, you decided to go back to school, went to the University of Michigan uh, and got a couple of advanced degrees, master's degrees in aeronautics and instrumentation engineering. Uh, and, and again, jump jump in if I'm, if I'm missing anything. Uh, this is the time of the birth of the space program. You sort of have your, your eye on that. Uh, you become a test pilot uh, and uh, uh, located in Edwards Air Force Base in California, uh, some more training there in F-104s. After that, uh, if I remember correctly, you're actually accepted into the space program, into the manned orbital laboratory program, uh, and unfortunately, uh, it didn't quite work out the way that you had hoped. I think that's where we left off uh, this last time. Uh, there was a perceived heart problem that you had. Uh, bring, let, let, let's start the story there. Uh, you were eventually cleared uh, to, to go back to flying, and uh, it was time for you to decide, uh, make an important decision. 
your choice between flying F-104s and F-105s. Which did you choose and why? Well, actually, it wasn't a choice between the 104 and the 105 because the 105 was engaged in combat and the 104 wasn't, or maybe just a little bit. But uh, I, w- I thought I should do my part, and I thought that I would fly the 105, so I went to McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas for six months. And while I was there, our son was born in Holloman, where my wife stayed, and was able to stay throughout the time I was overseas. And they, they sent an airplane up for me from Holloman to pick me up and flew me back. So I spent the weekend down there with my wife and my new son. And then pretty soon I'd finished up and uh, came back for a while and then off to Southeast Asia. Uh, caught an airplane uh, in San Francisco and went into the Philippines and went through Jungle Survival School and then to, uh, over to Bangkok, and from Bangkok, caught the uh, C-130 that did the circuit around all the bases in Thailand and got off in uh, Karat and was picked up in a squadron there. So you Uh, arrived in Karat Royal Thai Air Force Base in Thailand on October 1st, 1967. What was your first impression being there? Well, the first impression was I got there, and I I got there just as there was a 100th mission celebration. And some pilot had finished his 100 missions, which was the, if you were stationed in South in South Vietnam, then there was one year. If you were stationed in North Vietnam, there's 100 missions over North Vietnam. Just like there was 25 missions over Europe in the B-17, was a, uh, because it's so difficult to complete any more than that because of the uh, aircraft fire and so forth. So anyway, I got there, and they were having a celebration, and so I said, gee whiz, I'm really looking forward to doing that myself. How long is it going to take? And the answer was about six and a half months, if you will. And that's about what it turned out. Uh, and I was going to back up a little bit and say that uh, the Viet Minh defeated the French, and then that's when it was divided in North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And we were asked, the United States was asked to help out the government of South Vietnam, which was corrupt, and the the, uh, populace didn't think much of them. And, of course, the North Vietnamese, they were dedicated communists, and they wanted very much to unify uh, all of uh, Vietnam. Uh, Shades of Korea, which was about four years earlier than that. And... uh, so we were asked to help out in South Vietnam, and we had trainers that went in, and then pretty soon we had pilots that flew with them, and pretty soon we were doing the whole work, or pretty much all of it. And then we introduced ground troops to so, so-called protect our forces, and then pretty soon we were doing all, most of the fighting. So this was all in uh, South Vietnam, and that's what people normally think about when they think about Vietnam. But there was another whole war going on in North Vietnam. It's where I was part of. And, we, of course, we had no problem with North Vietnam until the Gulf of Tonkin, where supposedly some North Vietnamese gunboats fired on a couple of Navy destroyers. And so whether they did it or not, we don't know, but that was an excuse to get Tonkin Gulf Resolution passed, which essentially gave the president the authority to 
wage war. And it started off by bombing the Navy, bombing sites just north of the of the DMC. And then, as time went on, they decided to move further up north. Now, you have to remember, you don't have to remember this, but uh, when JFK came in, he enticed Robert McNamara to be his Secretary of Defense, who had been the uh, president of Ford Company. And his fame was in World War II, he designed a number of different systems for analyzing and he had with him some very clever young people that were called the Whiz Kids. And they employed, when they got to Ford, they employed that same method. And so when he came to the Pentagon, he did that too. Now, at what I learned later, not then, but I learned later that LBJ was not really concerned about Vietnam. He was concerned about the Great Society. And the trouble in Vietnam was... Uh, just in his way, and he kept getting asked for more people, and he he was listening to uh, the McBundy brothers and McNamara and not to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But the Whiz kid believed that if you can't manage something if you can't measure it. So that's that's a good thing to think through, but you have to know what you're measuring. What I found out was in in reporting back to LBJ how they were doing, what they were measuring were two things. The body count in South Vietnam and the number of hits uh, in the Hanoi area. And uh, there was the Navy was able to get into the Hanoi area uh, off the carriers using their A-6s, which bombed from level flight. The 105s and the, and the F-4s uh, relied on dive bombing. And so if it was undercast, we weren't able to do it. And so the Air Force got concerned that the Navy was out doing it, which is a silly thing to do. But that's something that we noticed. And what we found out was that starting about the time uh, I got there, maybe a little before, every target, every mission, the target was in the Hanover area, the primary target. And that was consistent with the idea that the Air Force was trying to get hits uh, to match the Navy. And there was a couple other things that they did which were equally silly, but uh, I'll back off on that. Well, let's talk about the rules of engagement for a minute. Now, the rules of engagement during the war did change over time, um, but but early on... uh, the rules of engagement, uh, there were seven route packages or packs, which were complex. For instance, here, here are some of the rules that I, I read about, that uh, early in the war, nothing in a 30-mile circle around Hanoi or a 10-mile circle around Haiphong could be hit. Now, that would change over time, but early on, I read that that was the case. Straying into the 20 to 30-mile buffer zone along the Chinese border meant serious trouble for the pilot who did so. Pilots could defend themselves from attacking MiG fighters, but could not hit them on the ground. SAM sites were fair game if they were active, but while under construction, they were safe. Um, Odd odd rules. It's a little like going into a fight with your uh, one arm tied behind your back. That's very very true, Tom. And uh, the the reason for that was Magnumar was concerned that uh, we would upset the Soviet Union and the Chinese, and they would become involved just like they did in Korea. So the uh, Soviets had uh, cargo ships coming into Haiphong 
all the time, and the Chinese were supplying it down the two two railroads uh, from their country. So what McNamara was afraid of was that we would upset them and that the Chinese would come in, which they did in Korea. So that's the reason there were uh, those restrictions. Now, we had trouble with the MiG-21s later on. Earlier they had MiG-17s that were not that formidable. They weren't fast, and uh, their tactics were something we could deal with. But the MiG-21, which you'll hear in this clip, was something that we couldn't deal with. And they came from a base called Fukien, which was west of Hanoi. It was off limits until uh, November of 67. And I was on the first mission that we bombed Fukien. But we had we had been uh, hit by airplanes flying off of Fukien uh, since 1965. So the rules of engagement were put in to keep us from upsetting the Chinese, particularly, and to some degree, the Soviets. It seems to me a terrible way to wage war, this idea of gradual war, expending just enough resources and just enough manpower to quote-unquote win, uh, but not not conduct an all-out war. I think it probably made your job as a pilot much more difficult, and certainly a, a policy that would change in, in later in the 20th century with the Gulf War when we heard words like shock and awe rather than a gradual war. Well, I'll tell you an interesting thing. I was uh, I started flying missions first of October 67, and I flew wing positions until uh, my 25th mission. I was a flight leader of a flight, which was one of the, uh, turns out we lost four airplanes on that mission, not, not out of my flight. And then when I was had, I think, 47 missions, I became a mission commander. And in our squadron, the 34th Tech Fighter Squadron, we had four people that had been designated as mission commanders. And I was one of them. Now, when they first started flying F-105s in Thailand, at two bases, Karat and then to the west of us, Tok Lee, there were squadrons who deployed there from McConnell in Kansas to Yokota in Japan, or to Kadena and Okinawa. And they came with their, uh, you know, the hierarchy. They had a squadron commander and ops officer and flight commanders and additional duties as such. Well, as they, some of them got their 100 missions and left, then they started to have replacements. And that's where I came in. The Air Force had a policy that for pilots, nobody goes twice until everybody goes once. So they were getting people that were behind the lines, in desk jobs and so forth, and sometimes flying uh, uh, transports. And so when I went through the course at McConnell, most of the people, well, half the people were not volunteers. I was a volunteer, but half the people were not volunteers, and only a few of them had flown fighter types like I had. So it was the airplane, the 105, was not terribly hard to fly, but it's hard to manage. And so many of these people that were replacements uh, could not appointed to do leadership because you had to fly your own airplane since you're by yourself, fly your own airplane, do the navigating, and, and decide what to do if you had bad weather or if you were hit by mix. And so that was probably of all my 34 years the most responsible uh, job that I had because people's lives were depending on it. 
Right. Let's talk about the F-105D Thunder Chief for a second. It was nicknamed the Thud. Uh, it's the yep. largest single-engine aircraft ever sent to war. Uh, you said it was uh, a good plane to fly. How, how did it get the nickname the Thud? Well, it, uh, the Thunder Chief, and because they had so many accidents, they would say, how do, how do four F-104s go? Whoosh, 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 whoosh. How do four 105s go? Splash, thud, thud, thud. So, <laughs> that, it, so Thunder Chief was shortened to Thud, and in the early part, if you call somebody a Thud pilot, you might get punched in the nose. But by the time I started flying them, and they were very reliable airplanes and carried 75% of the mission load into North Vietnam, to be called a Thud pilot was a badge of honor, and still is. Uh, let's talk about pilots for a second. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about s- something about the pilots that you flew with. Uh, Thunder Chief pilots were thought to be fairly wild characters by a lot of accounts that have been written since since the war. You're also considered to be the bravest of the brave. Uh, a lot of other a lot of pilots flying other aircraft really looked up to you all. Who who are some of the guys that you flew with? You don't have to name them by name, but what what give give us some of the characteristics that would make up a good thud pilot. Well, let me talk about my favorite, a guy named Bob Smith. And Bob Smith was a, a second lieutenant in the F eighty six and he went to Korea and got a couple of MIGs. Then after that, he got a degree, and then he went to Edwards, a test pilot school. And I knew him at Edwards when he was on the test staff there, and I was going through the school. He was also the guy that, that accepted the NF-104, the airplane with the rocket in the tail, and flew to 126,000 feet. And he was, he was, then of course, that's the one that Jaeger spun in later on, and Yeager didn't want to have any, he didn't need any instruction from Bob Smith. But Bob Smith was an ornery guy. He he wouldn't wear a G-suit, he wouldn't wear a flight suit, he flew in fatigues, he wouldn't wear glasses, he wouldn't wear gloves. He wouldn't do anything that people told him to, but he was a fearless leader and a hell of a good pilot. And he was a squadron commander, and um, we'd, we'd gone, we'd been to, at McConnell together, and so we, we came over in the same airplane, and we were both in the 34th, and pretty soon he became the squadron commander as a lieutenant colonel. And I was a brand-new major. And then later on, uh, in my seven-month tour, he made me the operations officer, which is the number two uh, position in the squadron. When, when, he wrote up, when he wrote up my efficiency report at the end, he said, I made Major Armstrong the operations officer in the squadron, although he was outranked by a number of other majors because I believe that those who lead in the air should also lead on the ground. And that statement in my efficiency report was what got me promoted earlier to Lieutenant Colonel. Hmm. We need to take our first break. Uh, We're going to continue this conversation right after we hear from our sponsors. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Go take him, 10. Big 21, no, 17 at 10 o'clock. We've got a bogey at about 9 o'clock, diving. Roger, roll. Pass, break left, break left, pass. Go, get rid of those. Okay, break, break left, 
Welcome back to History's Hook. What you just heard was an audio file made on a tape recorder from the cockpit of then-Major Sam Armstrong's F-105 while on a combat mission in Southeast Asia in about 1967. General Armstrong, take us through what we just heard. Well, I will tell you this. It was on the 17th of December, 1967, and I remember walking out to the airplane, and I said, this would be a very inconvenient day to me to get shot down because it's my daughter's sixth birthday and my youngest sister Adeline is getting married today. I said, so that would screw up everybody's celebration. Well, it turns out that's almost what happened because uh, we we had come up from Karat up the land route and had passed through uh, Thailand and then we got into Vietnam, we made a right turn to head to the target, which was a bridge just north of uh, Hanoi. And what you hear on the tape was somebody, several people calling out that there was an air, silver airplane diving down from the 10, 9 or 10 o'clock position, and it turned out it was a MiG-21 who fired. Uh, there were two of them. The one that really mattered was the one that fired the first heat-seeking missile and hit Bass Lee, who didn't break. And then the other one, uh, other missile fired at the same time, went across the formation and went right under where I was because one of my uh, flight mates said, Locust 2, pull it up, and I did, and apparently the, the heat-seeking missile went right underneath me. So that's, that's what you heard. But I think the thing that to take away from this is that in times like this, things are pretty chaotic. And then it also fairly well handled. I think you get that. My tape recorder wasn't all that, didn't have all that fidelity, but you could listen to it and reconstruct. It was good enough to reconstruct what happened. So that's I was what struck. Happened. General, that's I was, was I was struck by the calmness in voices. I mean, a, a plane has just been shot down. A, a pilot uh, has had to bail out, but the the mission continues and voices are calm. Uh, pretty amazing. Well, and then too, the when we jettisoned our bombs, we, we were carrying the the Locust Light was carrying CBUs, cluster bomb units, which was a uh, ammunition the same size of a 750 pound bomb, and it was filled with probably 60 or 70 little bomblets that looked like about the size of hand grenades, and they were in this shell, and there was a propeller 
at the end of the shell that would unscrew the thing so that the pod would open up like peas. When you released it, the pin would come out and the, the bomb would release and the wind would start to propel blowing and it would actually unscrew itself and it would spew these bomblets out. We, we used them on sites that had uh, uh, AAA sites that had revetments around them. And we used them in other places. Uh, the, the target we were going in on, we didn't have any particular thing to drop ours on. It was just if we saw something where they were shooting at us, then we would go ahead and roll in on it. Now, what happened on this mission is that uh, apparently uh, some of the CBUs that we, when we got rid of the bombs, some of them released and one of them got loose and hit the backseat pilot of, of Ozark lead and killed him. So we thought that it must have been a, a um, anti-aircraft fire from the ground, but it, it hit the top of the canopy. And then later they examined it, and sure enough, the, the, the metal in there was from our CBUs. I don't know which one of the four of us was guilty of that, and of course we never did look into it. They, Bob Beal, who was Ozark lead, uh, was a major from Virginia. You can hear his Southern Virginia accent. He had been a test pilot grant, was a great pilot. And what he was doing below us, I never understood. He should have been not below us. He should have been out well out in front. But apparently he wasn't. And so that's how we lost that one. And he was able to fly back to Udorn in northern Thailand with the help of one of the other guys and actually land. So that's what happened. In the meantime, what you didn't hear on this is that Locust Lead and I were, were making a hard right turn, and I said, pull it tighter, pull it tighter. I said, there's a MIG on her tail. And so we did, and then uh, number three and four got slung off. Neither one of those particularly good pilots, they got slung off, and so just Doug and I were together. As we headed back down the way we came, we flew right underneath the Takli strike force, which was going in on the same target. So at a, at a closure rate of about 900 miles an hour, we managed not to hit our, our fellow fellows. So we got back, and it was uh, that was it. Hmm. You mentioned earlier on that there are, there are many things that a pilot has to worry about on a mission, not just simply flying your route, dropping your ordinance, and, and getting home. Uh, I'm going to quote you uh, from, from your autobiography here, if you'll indulge me. You wrote, there were a dozen things that one had to do before entering North Vietnam. Maybe some pilots used a checklist, but I memorized the steps since I wanted to keep my head out of the cockpit. I made up a little jingle which contained the first letter of what needed to be done and had rehearsed it enough so that it came naturally even in times of extreme stress. Some of those steps were to dump the cabin pressure so that you would not ingest fumes in case of a hit in the compressor section. You also had to verify that you had selected the correct mill setting for the attack, selected the proper ordinance on the appropriate station, gone to 100% oxygen, etc. All of this time, you had to maintain your formation position and look for MiGs and SA-2s. This was not easy, and the less competent pilots had all they could handle. Do you remember the jingle? Do you remember your memory jingle? Well, I remember that, not not for the greening up, but I remember the slap fat check, which was uh, uh, a landing, what you did on landing with the speed brakes and so forth. I remember that. <laughs> but I don't remember. There were only four things to do, and you swept around the cockpit to do that. You went from left to right, and... The last thing you did was uh, uh, dump the cabin pressure. 
so you wouldn't ingest any smoke if you took a hit in the engine. But uh, no, we had to. Some people had to get out their checklist, which is the last thing you want to do uh, when you got to be looking around, and paying attention, make sure you don't run into the other airplanes. Will you describe the mission of November eighteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, for us? You called it the most disastrous mission of your combat experience. Yes, it was. Uh, that was one where I was uh, my first time. I think it was mission number twenty-five. That's my first mission as a. Uh, flight commander, and I was leading the CBU flight. We always had one, one CBU flight. Well, once again, in order to get missions into Hanoi, the Air Force borrowed some radar equipment that had been used by the Strategic Air Command for their bomb competition and put it on a mountaintop in Laos, the northern part of Laos, where there was already a tack end station. And the idea was you fly up and the radar observer there with this is because you got complete undercast. The radar observer there uh, would direct you, and you would you'd bunch up uh, three flights of four, and then the CBU flight was not going to be dropping there, so it would stay on the outside, which was which was me. So we started down the started down towards the target, which was Tainuian, and. Uh, all of a sudden, these SAMs start coming up through the, the clouds. And two people got hit, including the wing commander, Colonel Burdett. And I saw him get hit and go spin down into the undercast and flames. And Les Hauer, who was leading another flight. And these SAMs kept going up in about 35,000 feet or so. Uh, they would self-destruct in a nice orange burst. And then the guy that was given the radar instructions he said, I've lost the radar. You'll have to turn around and come back in. Go back in. Well, you can imagine what kind of nasty words he got, responses he got from that. And just about that time, I noticed that there was a, a MiG coming in from back at our 4 o'clock position. So I said, uh, get rid of your bombs and break right. So we did, and we headed on home. So we get, we get back to, no, on the way in, uh, the wild weasel flight, uh, MiG-21s hit and, killed, and knocked down two airplanes there. So we didn't have any wild weasel support, uh, which probably didn't make any difference because they're coming up through the clouds anyway. So we've lost four airplanes and never got to the target. And because we had lost the wing commander, Colonel Burdett, uh, they sent a, an airplane up with a two-star general on it from... Uh, Saigon to debrief us. So we landed at Karad and the standard thing and went through a maintenance debrief and then I went for the intelligence debrief, which was standard. And there was this Air Force major wearing fatigues there. Obviously he'd come up from Saigon. And he said, what hit you? And I said, Sam's. He said, there are no Sam's in that area. I said, well, I happen to know what they look like. And that's what they were. He said, no, you're wrong, Major. There's no Sam's there. So, okay. So, we, after that, we go into the overall debriefing, and each time we came back for a mission, everybody would get together, and we'd have a debriefing to see if we needed to, to notice anything. Of course, we were all sort of state of shock, having lost four airplanes, including the wing commander. And this two-star general who came up, he jumps up on the stage, says, anybody get any hits? 
And we thought, how could somebody be so stupid to know what he had? He had no idea what happened. Hmm. And uh, that was typical. The, the people in Saigon had no idea what it was like over North Vietnam because there were no spectators. Nobody went along unless you were carrying bombs. That was it. Wow. And these are the days before uh, satellites where uh, damage could be assessed uh, during and after, uh, I suppose. So uh, interesting. Well, we did have some we did have some satellite coverage after the fact. And um, I think we even had some SR-71s that occasionally flew over to assess them. But of course, if it if it was undercast like it was for a lot a long period of time during the winter, you couldn't see anything anyway. F-105s and the pilots who flew them suffered terrible losses. 395 of the 833 F-105s deployed in Southeast Asia were shot down. That's 40%. 108 pilots were lost. You had about a 60% chance of completing the 100 missions you were required to fly. Odds are you and or your plane didn't come through unscathed. You saw your men go down and get killed. You saw others captured. What was your mentality when you got, whenever you got into the cockpit? Did you, you mentioned one fellow pilot who lost a friend and was really never the same after that. You said that when you completed your 100th mission, he was still only about halfway done after he had lost his friend. How do, how do you handle that constant loss that you suffer in well, wartime? I think you just, you, you just had to start off with the attitude is, I know what I'm doing and it can't happen to me. My wife never worried about me too much, and I, I, I was sort of concerned that she didn't worry about me. <laughs> she said, I know you're a good pilot. Well, that's true, but uh, uh, if you get hit by uh, 85-millimeter flex, something you can't see, it doesn't make a difference how good you are. But um, at any rate, the, uh, you just you lower your head and go at it. Now, the weather did get bad over Hanoi, and so but the my first missions, and a lot of them were in the Hanoi area. Then after that, the, the monsoon season, it rolled in, and so only a few times that it was clear enough after that that we could um, uh, actually dive bomb. So, no, I think you just, uh, the atmosphere in the club, uh, when when things were going tough, there was no frivolity. There were a few people, uh, you know, non-pilots, who would play poker in the back room, but the they, the third pilots, uh, they didn't, it was all serious. And then when the weather got bad on Hanoi and we were bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, because that was what really was important, and then we would bomb in Laos and then they would be cleared into the southern part of North Vietnam and we'd see if we could find something to shoot up there with our Gatling gun and get credit for a counter. And so that's how I got a hundred and hundred counters and I had three missions that I didn't get a counter because I flew them but they because LBJ was trying to show that we were being nice and we didn't so the policy was nobody gets to go into North Vietnam so I bombed in Laos but was not not authorized to go into uh, route pack one in North in North Vietnam so I had three missions that I flew but didn't count for record talk for a minute about pilot superstition uh, you all wore Australian bush hats, and, and I read that a, mu- a mustache rendered a pilot bulletproof. Well, there was tradition that the pilots wore mustaches, grew mustaches. And I got there, and I said, well, I might as well. So I started growing a mustache, 
And pretty soon I was the only one that was growing a mustache. And I had a, uh, I got some must wa- uh, mustache wax and was uh, using it uh, to twirl my handlebars, mustache. And uh, speaking of our leadership, uh, the first month I was there, the vice commander, uh, Colonel Jack Flynn, was shot down. In fact, he, he, he bumped me. I went down to fly, and the name Armstrong had been struck out, and Flynn was put in there, and he was hit by Sam over Hanoi on that mission and became the senior POW. Then we lost Colonel Burdett in that mission I talked about before, and then we lost Colonel Bean, who was the D.O., in January, and then we had another wing commander who came in who died of a heart attack in his trailer. So finally, we got a wing commander. By this time, we only had one colonel who was barely a colonel and had no fighter experience. So we got a commander by the name of P.P. Douglas, Peter Paul Douglas, and he had been an ace in World War II flying P-47s and had flown the 105 somewhere. But he, he was a terrible pilot. And uh, his he, he he jumped on me. He said, now, Sam, you nice-looking man, young pilot. He said, but that mustache, you know what the rules are? And I said, yeah, they got to be neat and well-trimmed. He said, oh, bro, after tomorrow, you don't need any more. I said, no, sir, you're right. He said, good. And he started to walk off, and I said, sir, just one more thing. He said, what's that? I said, my six-year-old daughter always expressed a desire to see me with my mustache. I said, but she was young. She'll get over it. And he said, you SOB, you can keep it. So I did. <laughs> I've seen a photograph of you with that mustache, sir. You look like a thoroughly dangerous man. Yeah. <laughs> if, you saw the, if you saw the movie Dodging, I mean, Dodging Missiles, you, you probably saw that mustache, did you not? Yes, sir, I did. Well, let's take our second break. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We are talking today with Lieutenant General Spence Armstrong, Air Force retired. General Armstrong is a command pilot with more than 4,500 flying hours. His military decorations and awards include the Defense Distinguished Service Medal with Oakleaf Cluster, Distinguished Service Medal, Legion of Merit with Oakleaf Cluster, Distinguished Flying Cross with two Oakleaf Clusters, Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal with 14 Oakleaf Clusters, Air Force Commendation Medal, Army Commendation Medal, Air Force Outstanding Unit Award with V-Device and two Oakleaf Clusters, Combat Readiness Medal, National Defense Service Medal with Service Star, Vietnam Service Medal with three Service Stars, Air Force Overseas Ribbon Short and Long, Air Force Longevity Service Award Ribbon with six Oakleaf Clusters, Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Ribbon, Air Force Training Ribbon, Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross with Palm, Republic of Vietnam Campaign Medal, and Saudi Arabian King Abdulaziz Badge, second grade. He was awarded an honorary Doctor of Laws degree with the University of Akron in May of 1987. General, that took a minute to go through that list. It's an impressive list that outlines an obviously exceptional and successful military career. Out of that long list, is there a medal that means more to you than any of the others? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think that I was put in for a number of silver stars and were downgraded, 
because uh, during the time that we were really bombing North Vietnam was in the fall of 67. And so it's one of those things they said, we're granting too many of them, so we'll downgrade them to uh, distinguished flying crosses. So the times that I was most heavily involved, uh, I never uh, I was put in for the Silver Star three times, but they were downgraded because there were too many, I guess there were too many being approved, one of those kinds of things. Right. So no, I'm, uh, I'm happy with all of it. <laughs> I do have one medal that I'm, authorized to wear and it came from the from Saudi Arabia and I had to get special permission to put it on my records right but of course that only means I spent two years there <laughs> we'll get to that in just a second uh, uh, let's wrap up your time in Vietnam if we can after you completed your tour and returned to the states your reintroduction to your home country was not what you expected you wrote this I came home by myself, no squadron mates, and landed at Travis. That was the day that Catfish Hunter pitched a no-hitter for the Oakland Athletics, and the news carried that instead of the war in Southeast Asia. It was readily apparent to me as I came back to the States that veterans of Southeast Asia were not revered. The country was tired of the loss of American lives and no progress to be shown for it. It was more in vogue to be a draft resistor or an anti-war activist. Tell, tell me about how that felt. Were, were you completely surprised by that reaction when you came home? No, I think I was prepared for it because it had been building up for some time. I mean, uh, there had been, th- been mischief going on in Berkeley and down in, in L.A. at Watts. And so we were accustomed to those problems. And, of course, by the time I got back to the States, we had already had Martin Luther King's... Uh, assassination and also Robert F. Kennedy and, and fire broke all broke on all the place. But we we came into Edwards and was stationed there for three and a half years and it was sort of an we were isolated there because we had everything we needed there and I was flying the children were one year old and six years old. So I've I've thought about that as the sweet spot in my thirty four year Air Force career. <coughs> but because we were sort of immune to the stuff going on in, Cal- in Northern California or Southern California, the rest of the world. And I was flying uh, an awful lot and enjoying it and having a lot of family time. So there were things that I guess I was disturbed about the way we were received after coming back. But that that didn't last long because I was too busy trying to enjoy what I was able to pick up on. What was your posting at Edwards? You were you were teaching at the Aerospace Research Pilot School, is that correct? I was. I went there as both a flying instructor and a classroom instructor. Okay. And so I was a flying instructor in four jet aircraft, and I taught four different academic classes. So I did that for three and a half years, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that, and I I did some rewriting of some of our material uh, based upon some experiments that I did and some of the study that I did. Uh, so, no, it was a, at one point in time, I was the Air Force expert on longitudinal static stability. Now, if I could, I would tell you what that is like, but it is very boring, but that was good enough to have me be a, uh, a witness, expert witness on three accident reports there at Edwards. Huh. You were uh, promoted to lieutenant colonel while you were there. 
and, yes. and made deputy commander there. Uh, I thought it was interesting, um, just prior to leaving there to go to the Air War College, there was a change in command, uh, and the renowned pilot and astronaut Buzz Aldrin was given command at Edwards. Uh, he by then, he of course, did. was a national hero. What were your impressions of him? Well, he was he, he was uh, uh, worthless, to put it put it bluntly. Uh, he came out. He was going to be the commandant, and the current commandant, a guy named Bill Campbell, who was a great friend of mine that we'd been together some other time, and he was going off to. ICAF, and I was going to the National War College, and so Aldrin was coming in to be the new commandant. And he came in, and he, he said to Bill Campbell, who was going to be his escort, they had known each other in Germany, flying fighters, years before. And he said, I want to know something. He said, can I get a set of quarters where I could back up to the desert so my children can come up with the horses? He said, yeah. He said, uh, can I take my secretary with me in the T-38? And Bill said, well, uh, that's a little tougher. And he said, well, can I get a telephone number before I get there? And Bill said, okay. And he said, here's the number I want. So he, he read off the number that he wanted before he got there. So that was a pretty good indication of how serious he was about being the commandant. <laughs> and he gets there, and he spends maybe an hour at the school and the rest of the time at the stables and, and so forth. And so I could tell right away that he wasn't going. This wasn't going to work too well. And sure enough, he didn't. And uh, he was fired. Hmm. And when I was at the War College, uh, General Brown, who was the commander of Systems Command at the time, was there for the week in which they invite people in. And we were down at this park having a barbecue, and he was standing there by himself. And so I went over and introduced myself to him and said that I had escorted him when he came to the last time he came to Edwards. He said, oh, I remember you. Then he goes in to tell me, he said, Aldrin's a sick fellow. He said, I had to relieve him. And the guy who took my place is the deputy commandant, a guy named Ted Twining. He said, Twining was a good guy, but I didn't hold that against him, <laughs> which was more information than I was asking for. But, uh, uh, Aldrin, he was not a test pilot. He had not gone through the school. He was an engineering whiz, and no doubt about that, that had gone to MIT and got his Ph.D. But he was not a test pilot and did not understand test piloting. You graduated from the Air War College uh, and spent a little time at Fort Benning, Georgia, as the senior Air Force representative to the United States Army Infantry School. Uh, and then in 1973, uh, to the 12th Flying Training Wing as base commander at Randolph Air Force Base. Uh, an interesting event happened there. You took command before you were officially promoted to full colonel, meaning that there were right. people posted there that outranked you. Correct. There were three people that worked for me that were full colonels, and I, was a, I hadn't pinned on yet. And that was a little awkward, but uh, we got through it. We got through it. In July of 1974, you became the commanding officer of the 80th Flying Training Wing at Shepard Air Force Base. Uh, with just 18 years' service, it made you one of the youngest wing commanders in the Air Force. Uh, tell us about that command. Well, it was a uh, flying training wing, still there. And uh, it's a tenant on the base there at, at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls. 
and the main base it does technical training and the school of healthcare sciences and engineering and so forth. And so the the 80th Flying Trading Wing was a tenant there, which meant that I did not have some of the responsibilities that some of the wing commanders would if they were at a base but they were the senior guy. Because there was a, there was a two-star general who was the head of uh, uh, Shepard, who, whom I knew from before. He was in Myrtle Beach with me as a colonel, and I was a lieutenant. I knew him from before. So we had... Uh, we had two programs. We had the CAF, the GAF, where uh, we had started to train a number of German students there at Shepherd because the weather was so bad in Germany that uh, they needed that. And we were in the process of needing to train more pilots for uh, Vietnam issues. So we had a, a class of folks who that went through the T-37s and the T-38s in what we call the GAF program is uh, 265 hours. Uh, a lot of Air Force Academy grads like that because you got more flying time in that than you did other programs. And then we also had another program called the Security Assistance Training Program where we were training Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese would go through the program and they would get 170 hours in their wings uh, in the T-37 only. And, of course, they were not particularly good pilots. They didn't have the mechanical background and so forth. But it was fun. It was it was, it was a lot of fun. And during the time I was at Shepard, uh, I flew the T-38 as an instructor and uh, flew with every pilot in the program. Hmm. So I, did, I got a lot of flying time there. You went back to academia in 1976 uh, through 78, um, completing senior management courses at Columbia University in New York and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, what what was the point of going back to school? What what was your goal at this point in your career? How far were you expecting you would get uh, in your well, career? I don't know. I I really didn't want to go to either one of those places. They called me and told me that I was going to the uh, uh, program advanced advanced management program at uh, Harvard. Night Harvard, I'm sorry, Columbia University, and uh, I said, "Gee, I, I'll have to, I'll have to buy a gun." They said, "No, no, it's up at the, the campus north of there uh, uh, that had been donated." Uh, and so that's I was there six weeks, and it, it was good. The average age was 42. Uh, there was only one other Air Force guy, and the rest of them were in the industry, but they clearly had not the same age, but they clearly had not had the same amount of responsibility uh, that I'd had. So it was interesting. And then later on, they sent me to Harvard, senior managers in government, and that was three weeks. And that was interesting because uh, Harvard and their senior managers in government uh, program there, they, they use case studies. And so that's their stock in business is you study – you have case studies that people people go through. Well, it turns out in this class that I was in, uh, there were several people who were individuals who first-hand knowledge because they were part of that particular situation. So that was very that was very interesting too. But in both cases, uh, I had I would have preferred not to go to either one of them. But I guess you have to fill those squares and uh, in order to. Uh, satisfied 
uh, the Air Force, and so I did. Where were you posted when you got your first star? I uh, just see. I was I was posted at Randolph in the. I was I was assistant director of operations in the headquarters, having come there as a former wing commander, and I was promoted to. Uh, and I was on a promotion list of one star while I was there, and then before I pinned on this one, uh, I went to the Pentagon. So I went to the Pentagon and and R and D uh, in a couple of different jobs. So I was at the Pentagon for two years in the air staff. About how old were you when you got your first star? How old was it? Let's see. Uh, I got my first star in, let's see, 77? And hmm. in, in, in 78, I guess in 78. So I must have been 44. Pretty young. In 1983, during the Iran-Iraq War, uh, you were assigned as chief of the joint United States military training mission, whose mission was to train, advise, and assist the Saudi Arabian army. Uh, what was a what was a, give me a highlight from that posting? Well, as you mentioned, uh, I had no experience at all with that, and I went there not knowing exactly what I was supposed to do, but I had to figure out what I was supposed to do uh, because. Technically, I was supposed to oversee all the foreign military sales that we had with Saudi Arabia. But there was more than that because I was the guy that they they wanted me to establish a professional relationship with the senior Saudis and all of their services. So in case we ever needed to come there, uh, they knew me because personalities are so important in that part of the world. So we, we had, Beth and I went over, took our cat, and went over there, and we we set up camp in Dahran, which was on a Saudi military base. Uh, and we we stayed there, and then we would go to uh, Riyadh, which was the capital, and we had an apartment there. And, and I'd fly the airplane up there with my wife and, and interpreter and, and, tech, and uh, senior advisor, uh, and spend three days there and, and meet with the people, and then come back and fly on Saturdays with the Saudi Air Force there. So it was, uh, and I, we, we flew all over, all the six, about six different places that we had detachments. And one time uh, we went to uh, Yemen, Sana'a, Yemen. And that was because the Saudis uh, didn't want to fight the Yemenis. The Yemenis are pretty fierce people. When the Saudis were trying to integrate the, the uh, peninsula, they sort of left the Yemenis alone because they're pretty fierce people. So they paid them off and gave them airplanes and, and money and so forth. And so because it was a third third country transfer, then my obligation was to go down and make sure that was okay. So I got in, a, we got one of the C-12s that belonged in, I flew it down there with my wife and deputy and some other people. And we spent uh, two days there at Sana'a, which is uh, where, I guess, the, the Queen of Sheba came from. It was a terrible place. I got back. I was glad to get back to Saudi Arabia thinking, well, if you believe the world is flat, that's where you go to jump off. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a funny thing because 
they Yemen really didn't work hard at it. Uh, they had an F-5 squadron, where the, the squadron commander's wife had a baby, and he hadn't been to work in about three months. And the Taiwanese supported the airplanes. I also ran their dining room, so I went to I, I had lunch in a, in a uh, Yemen in Yemen dining hall run by the Chinese. Hmm. It was quite a it was quite a change. In July 1987, uh, you were assigned as Vice Commander of Air Force Systems Command at Andrews Air Force Base, uh, served there for uh, about three years, and in April of 1990, after 34 years of military service, retired from the U.S. Air Force as a Lieutenant General, three stars. Following yep. retirement, uh, uh, you joined NASA and had an 11-year career there, uh, joining President George H.W. Bush's Space Ex- Exploration Initiative as Director of Program Architecture uh, for the Synthesis Group. What exactly does that mean? Well, the Synthesis Group was something that I was recruited by Tom Stafford, who had been my boss in the Pentagon. Tom Stafford, uh, I worked for him in the Pentagon. He was a, uh, a two-star general and and I was a one-star general. I'd worked for him there, and he had been a four-time astronaut. And um, he was tasked to come up with a new way of how to go back to the moon to stay into Mars, and so he recruited people, including me, and we set up business there in Crystal City and worked almost a whole year with people from uh, the various services, uh, the various NASA centers, the various... uh, it was it was a it was really an eclectic group of people, all of whom were interested in doing that. So when now when we talk about, uh, we did write a nice a nice report, and submitted it. Never got anywhere because it was a congressman from Michigan that was determined nothing was going to happen, and it didn't. And so because I I'd worked on this, I got to know the NASA people, and then that's when I was invited to go to NASA headquarters. Uh, and I competed for senior executive position there and was appointed as the associate administrator for human resources and education. I did that for six years in which we downsized uh, the agency by 25% without any uh, red slips, pink slips. And then uh, for two years, they asked me to be the Associate Administrator for Aeronautics and Advanced Space Transportation, which made me responsible for the NASA Aero Centers, which is Langley and then Lewis and uh, Ames in California. So I did that for two years, and then they moved me up to be to the front office to be the senior advisor to the administrator for the last three years. And it was interesting. I, I, I did a lot of things to uh, protect the universities from NASA because uh, NASA had a very uh, rigid view of the life. It was sort of like, we're NASA, you're not get over it. And they demanded all sorts of things. So I just sort of, I was the guy who protected the universities from the NASA hierarchy. Hmm. And that was interesting. And I traveled all around visiting the various universities and what NASA programs were going on. And so it, it was a lot of. It was very interesting. I was there in the headquarters when 9/11. In fact, I got up on the roof and looked out to see smoke coming from the Pentagon, hmm. uh, and I did not see any airplanes circling like they were going to the White House. 
although it was reported that that had happened. If it had, I'd have seen it because I understand. And I know airplanes when I see them. Sure. That didn't happen. So that's sort of that. Then I I retired and have not taken any. I retired in in 2002, I guess. And I haven't had any paying jobs since then. I've had some pro bono jobs. I was on the board of the uh, Government Industry Research Roundtable uh, at the National Academy of Science, and I was on that and then made a full-time member. I was representing NASA and made a full-time member. I was on a board of directors of the Keenan Institute of Science and Technology down in uh, Raleigh, and I was an elder in our Presbyterian Church here, and let's see what else I did. Well, I guess that's about it. Then I've been here at the Fairfax. I've been the president of the foundation for 14 years, so that's taken up some of my time. Sure. Well, General Armstrong, it has been an honor to get to know you a little bit. I can't thank you enough for being a part of History's Hook. We appreciate your service, and we appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Clayton Harris, our engineer, thank you for listening to History's Hook. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.